Let's pray. Father, what a high privilege to stand and proclaim the excellencies of your Son. Lord Jesus, you have rescued me, and many of us in this room know the rescue of your life and death and resurrection, and we look forward to your soon return. It is, it is a privilege to unfold the gospel of John to the people that I love. So I, I pray that you'd help me to, to preach the gospel by expounding the Bible to these people whom I love. Come, Holy Spirit, and do the work that none of us can do. Convict us. Thrill us. Help us to see things that were, we were blind to before and help us to hear things that we were deaf to before. Do miracles in that way now we ask and we depend on that now for Jesus' sake. Amen. This morning we have the privilege as a congregation to launch out on what by God's grace will be our 11th full-scale verse-by-verse study of a book of Scripture together. Since July of 2005, we have worked our way through 10 books of the Bible. I was surprised to see that sitting at my desk the other day, adding it up. Ruth, Joshua, Hosea, Jonah in the Old Testament, Romans, Philippians, Philemon, First and Second Peter, and Jude in the New Testament. And there have obviously been partial studies of books of the Bible. There have been thematic studies and topical studies along the way, all of them drawn from Scripture. But as long as I've been the preaching pastor of this church, we have never worked our way verse by verse through an entire gospel, one of the four gospels. We've studied significant portions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we've never worked our way from front to back through one of them. And that is something we want to remedy as a congregation. Our vision at Mount Evangelical Free Church is to glorify God by being a gospel-centered church family who celebrates and demonstrates and communicates the good news of Jesus Christ among all people. And you've got to know I am in love with that vision statement. I think it's a grand slam. It's simple. There's balance in it. There's symmetry to it. It even rhymes, right? But to be a church that celebrates and demonstrates and communicates the good news of Jesus presupposes that we are crystal clear on what that good news is. In other words, to put another alliteration into use, if our vision is to enjoy and to emulate and to express Jesus to people, then we have to see him. And we are at no disadvantage living 2,000 years on this side of the empty tomb to do that. John says in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, we have seen his glory. I think that was tipping us off that he's an eyewitness. Well, we will be and make disciples of Jesus Christ as a church 
when we are absolutely floored by Jesus as a church. We want to be shocked and stunned and staggered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that, I think, is reason enough to find ourselves in the gospel according to John this morning. And if you haven't done so, I will invite you to to open a Bible to the gospel according to John. If you've already got one open up to the text that was read to you, I'll just invite you to page backward to the beginning of the book. If you're using a red Bible underneath the seats, uh, the Gospel of John begins on page 886, 886 in the Red Bibles. We won't actually plan to begin our study of John chapter 1, verse 1 until next week. But what I'd like for us to do this week is to get an overview of the book. You see on your outline perhaps the ground that we hope to cover today. And we're going to begin with authorship. Who wrote the Gospel of John? That may sound like a silly question to you, but it is not a silly question. It's an important question because this book of Scripture, strictly speaking, is anonymous. That's all right. John is in good company. The other Gospels are anonymous too. I know the Bible in front of you today says otherwise, but you need to know that in the years following the publication of this book, this title was attached to it. The early church was convinced that it was written by John, that happened to all four Gospels. Each of them are anonymous, strictly speaking. Unlike many of the epistles of Paul where he mentions his name at the outset of the letter, we don't have at least a name to deal with at the beginning of this Gospel. But just because there was no name originally given does not mean the author didn't leave some clues. This is one of my favorite things to do is to look at the internal evidence of the authorship of a book. And this is a treat. We'll do this for weeks on end into the days ahead. As we work our way through this book of the Bible over the next seven months, we will see internal evidence all over the place that this author is at least an apostle. And given the nature of the evidence we have, he was one of the original 12 disciples. I think we even have hints here and there, and if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, We have hints here and there that this indeed was John, the son of Zebedee. We're justified in thinking that way. But he didn't leave his name. Instead, he most often refers to himself, you know, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that great? Four times he takes this title to himself. Some have thought that that self-designation The disciple who Jesus loved indicates a sort of swagger that John had, a kind of arrogance. The disciple whom Jesus loved, right? I don't think so. I agree with author Don Carson who writes, such a suggestion betrays a profound ignorance of the Christian experience. If a son of thunder becomes known as the apostle of love, It is scarcely a mark of arrogance. It is rather a mark of brokenness. I believe that down to my toes. And if you know that Jesus loves you, you do too. Well, so much for authorship. How about date? Do we know when this was written? Well, we we don't. Uh, Some people press for a very early date, somewhere in the mid-first century, and... My view, they're stretching things a little early. 
Um, Yet there are those many who would want to date the gospel quite late, somewhere into the second century. And I would say that's the opposite error, stretching things too far. Trusting that we have internal evidence that it was written by John, the beloved disciple, I think you can comfortably settle on a date of somewhere between 80 to 95 AD. 80, 80 to 95. I know that's a decade and a half swing, but that's about as close as we can probably get. Now, what does that mean? It means that John may have been 70 to 80 years old when he wrote this book. 70 to 80. John may not have been traveling much in those days. He might have been preaching quite less, but this man was finishing well. Wouldn't you agree? As a faithful reader of the Old Testament, John would have prayed Psalm 71, verse 18. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. That's John's design in this letter. That's what this gospel is. And we have evidence from history that that's precisely what John did. Um, so AD 80 to 95 where do you write it from uh, geographic origin this question is, is even more slippery than the question of date um, but this is where church history can come in really handy one of the early church fathers was a man named Irenaeus Irenaeus was born about the year 120 AD just a generation after the death of the last apostles. And Irenaeus was mentored by a Christian leader named Polycarp. And Polycarp himself was mentored by none other than John, the beloved disciple. Irenaeus reflects on his days being discipled by a man who was himself discipled by a man who knew Jesus. And this is what Irenaeus writes. Listen to this. I remember the events of those days more clearly than those which have happened to me recently. I can speak even of the place in which the blessed Polycarp sat and disputed, the discourse which he made to the people and how he reported his converse with John and with the others that had seen the Lord, how he remembered their words, Polycarp had received from the eyewitnesses the word of life. That gives me chills just to read that. So, in relationship to the question of geographic origin, if Irenaeus has earned the right to be heard, listen to him here. Quote, John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned back on his breast published the gospel while he was a resident at Ephesus in Asia, end quote. And he likely learned that from Polycarp, who himself knew John. Now, that doesn't mean he's right. It just means I'm not going to tell him he's wrong, okay? That's incredible. So written, perhaps, from the city of Ephesus toward the end of the first century. Now, to whom was the gospel written? Who were the recipients? Well, if it was written from Ephesus, as Irenaeus claims, it was written to be a circular document. 
Everything that starts in Ephesus uh, is that way. Um, Like the letters to the seven churches that you find in the book of Revelation, also written down by John in Revelation 2 and 3, a document would begin at Ephesus, but then it would go straight north to Smyrna and even further north to Pergamum. And then it would turn southeast and make stops at Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and finally Laodicea. In other words, if it went from Ephesus and John wrote it from Ephesus, he intended a rather expansive authorship with his gospel. And you know what? He got it. It worked. Now, for our purposes, we need to remember that we are also recipients of this gospel. It's a point that we're going to see in greater detail as John's purpose in writing this gospel is unfolded. But think of it. Can you imagine a book of the Bible today, honestly, with a broader readership than the Gospel of John? I mean, I can't. In our evangelistic endeavors, which single book of the Bible appears most by itself as a standalone publication to give to people who are examining the claims of the faith? Gospel of John. When somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, what's oftentimes the very first place that we point them? Gospel of John. When students are memorizing scripture, what book do they frequently focus on? Oftentimes full stock. I I know this because I talked to Caleb Brickley a handful of days ago who told me that he almost memorized all of John cold as a teenager in this church. And he wasn't alone. I suspect little brother Seth was in the same camp. But we'd be far off if we imagined the gospel of John was only for beginners or for young people only. Over the last hundred years, seminarians among us would know this, the gospel of John has been in focus probably among any other book of the Bible as the most detailed uh, theological discussion and debate among at least books of the New Testament. This is deep waters for people who have lots of letters after their name, get paid to write books about it. But this book isn't just for scholars, and you know this firsthand too as an adult. When a Christian's time is drawing near and they know that they are soon to meet eye to eye with their Savior, what book is often called for? The Gospel of John. Um, Some of the sweetest moments I've known as a pastor were the ones sitting beside Lou Bryce just down the road a handful of years ago as this 97-year-old woman called for the Gospel of John. And I would speak to her in the King James, John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I go and prepare a place for you. So who are the recipients of this gospel? We are. Yes, the city of Ephesus and every single one of us. This book is evangelistic to the core, but it's also got an edification uh, aspect to it too. So we'll examine that reality a little bit more as we look at chapter 20, verse 31. But before we get there, let's just take a briefest of look at the structures And then we'll drill down on one verse. The outline of John's gospel is provided for you in your sermon notes. There's nothing original here. 
I would see the arrangement and the organization of John's gospel as most people do. Four parts. Part one, the prologue. Chapter one, verses one to 18. Part two, the book of signs. Chapter one, verse 19, clear to chapter 12, verse 20. And that's just about halfway or perhaps two-thirds through this book. Part three, the book of glory. Chapter 13, verse one, clear to the verse we're going to look at today, chapter 20, verse 31. And then right at the end, there's a final chapter, part four, an, an epilogue, if you like, chapter 21. There's 25 verses there. Basically, there are two parts with an introduction and a conclusion. This is not complicated. Now, we'll learn much more about why the first 12 chapters are called the Book of Signs and why the last eight chapters are called the Book of Glory. We're going to unfold that over the weeks ahead. But the outline is there for you so that you can see how very uncomplicated this book is. When John wrote his gospel, he wasn't aiming for elaborate or complex. His objective was far too straightforward for that. And if you're interested in knowing what that objective is, I will invite you to turn back to chapter 20 and verse 31 as John reveals to us his purpose for his gospel. We'll just camp out in one verse in the time that remains, and we'll see beyond dispute what John's intention is in writing this book for us. John chapter 20 and verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why were these 21 chapters written? They were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I am in full agreement with one New Testament scholar who writes, not only does verse 31 reveal the purpose of the book, but to unfold in detail each word and phrase of verse 31 would be to unfold the book. That's an amazing statement. I think it's true. I think it's right. The whole Gospel of John is here, just in these words in verse 31. Believe Christ, Son of God, life. And all we need to do is just fill those up with a little bit of biblical meaning. Gospel of John type meaning. And we need to start with that all-important word, believe. Believe. It's a simple enough word. We use it all the time in the culture and in the church. But what does it mean to believe? Does it mean to think that something is true? Well, yes, it does. Does it mean more than that? Well, yes, it, it does. Listen to verse 31 again. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You could notice at least two different aspects of believing in verse 31, right? First, there's, there's content to believe. I looked at the words of Josh Groban's Believe 
on the internet the other day. You know that song? There's no content to it. There's content here. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. There's substance to be believed here. There's subject matter. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why John wrote his book. Do you believe? You believe that Jesus is the Christ today? The Son of God? Do you? Believe. 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 It's the drumbeat throughout this book of Scripture. Do you know how many times that word appears in one form or another? You know you're going to hear it, right? 99 times in 21 chapters. Believe. 99 times. Now, I don't make a practice of writing in my Bible. No points off if you do. I just don't. But I couldn't help myself. I got on my little yellow highlighter, and I sat at my desk, underlining every believe that my concordance said was there. You can find the word believe in every chapter except for three of them. That's nearly every page of John's gospel but two of them. Now add to that word the little word life that appears in verse 31. Life. You know how many times that word appears in John's gospel? I don't know how many times. Right? 55 times in John's gospel. 55. So you know what I did? I got on my highlighter again. Then I went through, starting in chapter 1, verse 4, clear to chapter 20, and found every occurrence of the word life. You know what the visual result of that is? Stunning as you read through. It's captivating. I commend it to you. So there's content to believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then there's the result of believing, the intent of believing, that you may have life in his name. My Bible is just shimmering in yellow. I can't avoid these conclusions as I read John's gospel. You see why John's gospel has something for everyone on the planet? These truths are simple enough that you can take your first steps with Jesus with them and these truths are deep enough that you can swim in the ocean of this revelation and not exhaust it if you are with us today and you're not a Christian but you want to become one I say on the authority of John chapter 20 verse 31 believe believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. Believe that Jesus, as we're going to learn in the weeks ahead, is the Word become flesh, the Lamb of God, the bread of life, the light of the world, the Good Shepherd, the resurrection, the true vine, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Amen? We invite you to put your faith in Jesus this morning. There's content to faith. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
But what about all of us here who do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Does John's gospel have anything in particular for us? Yes, it does. Life. Life. Life in his name. Notice that's the stated purpose of believing. Verse 31 again. That by believing, you may have life in his name. Another way to say that is that John says the good news of Jesus Christ is to be believed, and that means by God's grace it is to be lived. The good news of Jesus Christ is to be believed. And what John means by that is that the good news is to be lived. So believing is thinking that certain things are true. Yes, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Of course it is. But it's so much more. It's so much more. What is belief? What's faith? Here's my definition according to John's Gospel. This is my definition. If, if we're going to believe, we need to know what that is. Belief or, or faith is this. It's trust that transforms you. Belief, faith, is trust that transforms you. Is that, is that an important distinction to make? Oh my, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. As one of my favorite authors writes, we are surrounded by unconverted people who think they do believe in Jesus. Drunks on the streets say they believe. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they believe. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they believe. All kinds of lukewarm, world-loving church attenders say they believe. The world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. This was me 15 years ago when I was 18, 16 years ago. How old am I? I'm 36. I would have told you that I was a Christian. There's no doubt. I would have just signed up, I'm a Christian. And I would have said that I believed in Jesus. And it took a dear friend of mine who was an agnostic himself at best to say, really? Like you followed Jesus? And I said, well, no. He said, well, like you have a Bible? And I was no. Do you, do you worship in church in any meaningful way? I said, well, you don't either. He said, we're not talking about me. I'm just asking about you. And I said, no. And whatever faith I had, whatever faith was there, which was nothing really, was gone in that moment. I professed faith in Christ, but I didn't possess faith in Christ. John's gospel will show us there is a profound difference. It was not the fault of my church or my parents. I could have repeated the Apostles' Creed backward to you in Swahili. I didn't believe. Three years later, 
I experienced a new birth. And I did believe. We'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. John chapter 3. So, John says that the good news of Jesus Christ is to be believed, and that means by God's grace it is to be lived. What's belief? What's saving faith? It's trust that transforms you. Trust that transforms you. Now, I know I'm asking you, in effect, to believe me that that theme is thick and just thunders straight through John's gospel. If I've earned a little bit of good credit with you, you can take my word for it, but I don't totally want to have you take my word for it. We'll turn to one more verse as we close. John 31 says that believing means, the appointed end of believing is to have life in his name, trust that transforms you. But if you wanted to see one place, and there's many, one place in the gospel we could go would be John 14, 12. I'll read this verse to us as we close. John 14, 12. Jesus has just invited his disciples in the upper room to believe in him. Listen to that. He invited his disciples to believe in him. We don't want to assume anything in this church. Uh, John chapter 14, he said, Believe in God, believe also in me. Believe me that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. So he's just given this invitation, and they're there with the bread and the cup. And he says in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Some of us don't believe that. I want to read it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm doing, going to the Father. Whew. What's belief? It's trust that transforms you. Trusting in the gospel of Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, living in the strength that he supplies so that he gets the glory for our lives. People see our works and they give glory to our Father who is in heaven. John says that the good news of Jesus Christ is to be believed and that means that by God's grace it is to be lived. Aren't you looking forward to the gospel of John as a congregation? Me too. Next week, John's prologue. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, you have in your kindness stooped down and caused a book to be written. There are pages, pages after pages in front of us, and every one of them points to the person of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that as our great desire is to be a gospel-centered church family, that we just wouldn't lose the forest for the trees. That over the next 31 weeks, we would be amazed by the grace of Jesus that we would worship him, that we wouldn't simply believe, but that we would come to see that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore in your presence, Jesus, is fullness of joy, and that has everything to do with our mission. As it's painted outside in Fellowship Hall, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. We ask this for Jesus' sake. 
Amen.